You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hello and welcome to Delirious Nomads, a heavy metal podcast. Featuring your host, Chris Santos. Yay. And myself, Matt Bacon, pushing the record label Blacklight Media, a Metal Blade subsidiary that we are super proud of and spend a bunch of time on. And it's really cool. We are here today with basically one of my favorite authors from high school, which is very strange. Always goes back to high school with you. Always. Well, you know, I I haven't had many other years, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even remember high school. Anyway, continue. Kat Terman author of Louder Than Hell, journalist extraordinaire, friend of Alice Cooper. Am I missing any other key titles, Kat? Not key titles. There's a million more, but they're not for public consumption or family shows. So that, so <laughs> now I'm one degree from Alice Cooper twice because I'm friends with you and I'm friends with Nita Strauss. So I'm one degree from meeting the man. One degree. You haven't met him? I've never met him, no. All right, we're going to make it happen. He's the best, you know. He really is. I've worked with him for 16 years. I was also editor of RIP magazine. You know, I was there for eight years. So I think that's probably pertinent to how the book came about and career. But yes, you will meet Alice Cooper. Thank you. I I love that. So Louder Than Hell, for those who don't know, is the best book ever written about heavy metal. It is the definitive guide. It's also, it's an oral history, which is my favorite type of book. But it really is great. I mean, it's it's just so well written, so well researched. I have so many questions just about that book and how, how much time it took to put that together and, you know, how tedious it must be to do these interviews and then break them up and get the perfect quote for the perfect chapter. It's got to be really crazy. But let's go back to the beginning. Like, you know, I know that you're, you're, you're a journalist, obviously, you've written for Spin and Village Voice, and you just mentioned Rip Magazine, and you wrote this incredible book. But so what came first? Like... Interest in journalism or interest in rock and rock and metal? Interest in rock and metal. I grew up in Los Angeles, which was, you know, turns out to be very fortunate for my career, even though I went to journalism school and everyone said, oh, you have to go to a small town to make it in journalism, you know, start in the middle of the country and then, you know, make your name and then you can go to L.A. or New York. But I'm like, no, I'm in L.A. I'm starting here. In, in high school, I only really did great in English. And I loved reading. So I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? And, and journalism seemed the thing. There's two moments when it happened. Um, Matt won't understand this, but <laughs> in, record, in record stores, there used to be a lot of free magazines up front. You know, even Tower had Pulse maybe. And there were just all these free fanzines and rags and stuff. And so when I was 15, 16, I'd be picking those up and I'd be reading the reviews and 
you know, checking to see what bands were playing in LA. I started going out when I was around 16 and could drive and I was reading the reviews. I'm like, I'm better than this. And I'm, you know, just getting out of high school. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe I should focus on journalism. So I, I went to USC journalism school and then um, it just seemed logical since I was going to see bands already. And this was 84, five, six, that it would mesh together. I wrote for the Daily Trojan, which was our school paper. And I, you know, USC is kind of a, wasn't necessarily my personality vibe. It was, you know, kind of rich preppy at the time, preppy. So I made the the Daily Trojan write about uh, Twisted Sister where, you know, Dee Snyder was one of my first interviews. And I'm sure no one at the school cared, you know, but I did. So yeah, that was kind of how it, the meshing happened pretty early on. How do you get from there? I mean, there's, there's got to be multiple steps. What was the ladder climb like and how difficult or not was it for you? I don't think it was that difficult. And I hate to say that. Of course, the weird thing is that there was no internet then, of course, in the mid 80s. So um, that when there, you know, a much smaller pool, a little bit easier. But I will say that college internship was a huge help. A turning point was... I got an internship at the Los Angeles Times, which is, you know, not unusual for people who go to college in L.A., but it was still, you know, an honor and exciting. And I thought, well, I'll go into the metro section, which is, you know, local news. That seems logical. And they saw, oh, you've written for uh, the Trojan about music. Why don't you try calendar? I'm like, all right. So that was I wasn't even necessarily going for music, but I ended up in the calendar section. And the first thing I wrote was about like a circus and that I gradually um got to write about music there under there was a, a great editor who's who's retired from the times but he's written a great johnny cash book his name was robert hilburn and um yeah he was like he was the shit in la at the time you know and yeah he was kind of the mentor i was so i, mean, I felt i was like i don't remember the movie where the guy's like flop sweat but i would sit next to him as he's editing me and i was like so nervous and freaked out he had his favorites who were like Bruce Springsteen and you uh, too. And so like everything I wrote, he'd be like, does it sound like Springsteen? I'm like, no, no, please don't put that in my story. And yeah, so I, I had the internship and that kind of when I graduated, I actually, this is funny. I ended up at a trade publication for the pool and spa industry. I was an editor at pool and spa news. So that was my first full-time job after college. I was actually just at the ocean county there. You know, there's like all these roller coasters and rides and like everything on a stick and fried that you can eat. And then in the middle of it, randomly, there's like a hot tub, like kiosk, where you can like shop for a hot tub at the fair. Weird thing. I know that. And, and actually, you know, as a professional journalist, the first conventions I went to were hot tub and pool conventions. A lot of swingers or what? <laughs> it was it was very entertaining. Unless they can party, those people. But, you know... Uh, and I, I was still freelancing in music at that time. There was a magazine that's still around in LA called Music Connection. And um, actually it was a publicist and a journalist named Bruce Duff. He saw that I was writing for the Daily Trojan. He's like, oh, as a publicist, he's like, why don't you write about my bands for this magazine? So that, that's kind of freelance again. That's interesting because Music Connection now, from what I understand, is more of like a producer and mastering type person magazine it had that then i mean it was basically a la-based music magazine so they would cover actually one of my first stories for them was a poison cover story but they did cover producers they they pretty much just covered that. but yeah i think now this is my feeling i don't live in la now but 
I don't think there is a scene, of course, like there was in the 80s in L.A. So I don't think they're able to find the poisons and the Guns and Roses to put on their covers. I could be wrong, but that's. Although I do live in L.A. and I'm a recent transplant to L.A. And it's amazing that if you go look at the calendar at the whiskey, it's all the bands from the 80s. I mean, all of them are playing. Between now and the end of the year, you get Doc and Faster Pussycat, L.A. Guns, Bang Tango, Bullet Boys. Like they're all playing speaking my language yeah exactly i mean if i'm getting the time period right and i apologize if i'm not it sounds like you were right in the thick of that whole sunset strip lamb metal hair metal i was because i was in high school in 81 82 got my license and drove to hollywood so the first shows i saw were like Wasp at the Troubadour. So it was like Fast Times? I I didn't work at a a Fish and Chips Pirate thing, but um, yes, it was kind of like Fast Times. I love Fast Times. Matt gives me a hard time because it took me a long time to read, but um, I just finished reading Nothing But A Good Time, which you are are quoted in. But what that book did, which your book, Louder Than Hell, also did um, for me, is it really succeeded in taking me back and making me feel like I was there. Um, I really, really, really got engrossed in this nothing but a good time book. And of course, years, a couple of years ago, your book louder than help. But anyway, like I'm, I'm on such an eighties hair thing right now. It's all I'm listening to. It's, you know, I just bought tickets to go see Dokken, which I'm so excited about the jealousy that I have for not having been able to experience that period. And I mean, I was born and I was there, but I was just on the wrong coast. I was, you know, in 80, 85, 86, I was, you know, in high school or at the tail end of high school. And I was loving it, but I was 3000 miles away. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny that I, it was right place, right time for me. Definitely. Because in 81, there was still, it was kind of 81 was not a turning point necessarily, but I think like rat quiet riot, they'd all started very late seventies and the very early eighties were starting with, you know, Motley Crue rat quiet, Riot was Debro, you know, after Randy Rhodes left. And so, yeah, I was around for all of that. That's amazing. Yeah. But here's the funny thing, you know, like you're, you're saying, Chris, you wish, you know, you'd been there. I wish I'd been on the sunset strip in the sixties to see the doors. So. <laughs> right. 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 Um, so how it, it, it was as crazy as the book describes in terms of just, you know, the streets being filled with people during after shows and flyers everywhere. And I have to say, um, you know, when I started going out, obviously I was under 18. Of course I had a fake ID that said I was from Arizona. What was, wait, what was your fake ID name? You know what? I think I used my own name. I, I did it through the mail. I sent away like my picture and my birthday and it came back. So I think I had a, my name. So, you know, I wouldn't forget it at the door. <laughs> of course, you guys know the Rainbow Bar and Grill, which has been around since, well, the 70s as the rainbow, I guess. Totally tangential. I think I remember some years ago, they tried to do a rainbow in Las Vegas, but it didn't work. I think, yeah, the, the original rainbow is, you know, iconic. So I started going there when I was probably 16, 17, because they let girls in at 18, guys at 21. That says a lot about what they're... <laughs> Process was. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's not. <laughs> I mean, I met okay. Brian May there when I was like in high school, and I made the mistake of telling him that my mother liked Queen. Oh boy. <laughs> so honestly, my friends and I would just do rainbow parking lot. We'd go out, do something else, get to the rainbow around 1:45 because closing time was two, and then the parking lot was filled, of course. Then there would be after parties or whatever. But yes, the entire Sunset Strip was just flyer, flyer, flyer. It's 
it was, I don't know if what movie has captured it best. There's of course decline of Western civilization, which we can talk about. And um, I was thinking, you know, about the dirt, the, the movie they made. Um, but yeah, the sunset strip was, I mean, at the time I lived there and it just felt normal, but so many bands were moving. They, they'd seen whatever on MTV, be like driving cross country and woo. But, you know, it was exciting for me, even though I, I lived there. It still was really amazing, really. At the time, not now necessarily, but at the time, who were your favorite bands, you know, when they were all coming up? You mentioned one who I loved. I really like Bang Tango. I love them because of Kyle Kyle, their bass player, if he's still their bass player. You know, they had a little bit of a funkier, the Attack of Life song, I'm sure you know. So I love them. You know, I went to see Poison before they got a record deal. I saw them a lot and I appreciated them, but they were too goofy. But I mean, I really, I, you know, I sang along with Talk Dirty to me, but my favorites were like the dirtier, sleazier stuff, like when Guns N' Roses started. And then Geffen Records had like all my favorite bands at the time. And that was like Junkyard, Little Caesar, Rock City Angels. Rock City Angels are sick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the bluesy based sleaze rock stuff um, a little more than the total pretty boy. I actually, made, I just grabbed my phone. I made a list of my favorite bands. This is what, this is what I do when I'm on like airplanes. My favorite bands from the eighties that didn't make it. Oh, let's hear. They're not all from the Sunset Strip, but. My favorite, and probably my favorite 80s, my favorite band from that era and genre is Vane. Who are, you introduced me to them. They were, they're awesome. San Francisco, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, that record. The, great choice. Great. Again, probably not from the Sunset Strip, but King Cobra, if you remember. I do. Wait, was that Carmine's band? Yep, yep. yep. Carmine. Totally remember, yep. and then he made them all dye their hair blonde. I mean, Saigon Kick made it, but they didn't really make it. Loved, loved, loved that. I can't remember the title of the record, but it was the black and white album cover. Love them. I'm, and still in touch with them. Jason Beeler. Yes. Great. Um, black and Blue was another one that I loved that didn't really make it, even though they had Gene Simmons supporting them. I do have Bullet Boys and Bang Tango on here because when I say make it, I'm thinking the bands that made it to that next level or even a level after that. Right. And I feel like. They didn't. And then, you know, one of my favorite bands from that period, definitely not from the Sunset Strip. Okay. And maybe would be Loudness from Japan, which was my first concert ever, which was my first concert ever. Wait, really? Yeah. Rock and roll crazy night. That's awesome. Yeah. With Keel opening up. Wow. Yeah. Providence, Rhode Island. Um, That's sick. Yep. With my first, my first three shows. And I can't make this up. Actually, I'll I'll bring it to the first four because Alice Cooper was on the fourth. Um, my first show ever was Loudness and Keel. The second show was Dark Angel and Possessed. The third show was my first arena show with Rat with special guest openers Bon Jovi, which is amazing. If you think about that in an arena, fifteen thousand people, and then Alice Cooper with special guest Megadeth. Those are my first four shows. I don't know what the fifth one was. I, I kind of after that I stopped counting, but I know those were the first four. Are you not a guy who keeps your ticket stubs and stuff? I do. I have tons of ticket stubs. Yeah, I do. I don't, but I didn't, I don't have, I should have way more. Same. Yeah. 
Badlands put out a great record in that. Well, that was probably maybe 19, because it was after The Ultimate Sin, right? Jakey Lee left Ozzy. Yes. That might have been a 1990 record, but that Badlands record was a great record. I think a lot of people loved them. Um, that was Ray. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, people love them. I know. I feel like people like now Mike Inez and a lot of people knew that band and liked that band. They were kind of like a musician's band in some ways. Yeah. You know? yeah. And they weren't, you know, like, you know, Ricky Rocket Hair and CC Deville, Deville right. personality or anything. <laughs> and bless my heart in 1986 or 87, I loved Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Yo, Vinnie Vincent Invasion is great. In terms of East Coast glam, do you guys like kicks? Love them. Love them, but it's I they I discovered them later in life. I did not really get into them yet when they were doing their thing. As I've gotten older, um, you know, Hair Nation, by the way, which is always on on in my house, uh, has actually introduced me. Like like Kicks is a band that I have more appreciation for now than ever because I hear them on Hair Nation all the time, which has then forced me to kind of go back and you know listen to their records. Like they they were great. I just didn't love them. I didn't love them then, but I love them. They're they're from your neck of the woods. They were like Hammerjacks or whatever that club was in Baltimore. I think was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's such an incredibly amazing thing to like have off the top of your head to know. Right. <laughs> and then when Twisted Sister broke up, the dr- at drummer um, AJ Perro put a band together called Cities. Definitely heavier. Yeah. Couldn't be called hair metal because it was heavier than that. But one of the all time, an all time classic for me, and nobody's heard it. I, think. I don't know it. So this is the you, you have. Well, if I was someone else, I'd say you stumped the trunk. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that band at all. Yeah, cities. They put out one record. I thought it was great, and then I, you know, I did a YouTube search, and they played a festival in like 2018 wow. or something in New York, and I was like, oh, there's hope. Yeah, I might still get to see them. And it's funny, and I like a week ago went down the, the internet rabbit hole on Vinnie Vincent. Which is a weird rabbit hole. What's going on with him? One wife was murdered and, and another died, which of course happens, but it's like. And then they like cleared out his house at yes. one point because it was like unhabitable. And then they like found dead dogs in these barrels. Yes. We need to do an investigative thing. And now they're going through some sort of gender thing. When they like did the coming out, like when they did their first public appearance in like however many years, I was on tour with Exhorter and Kyle Thomas and I spent the entire, like multiple plane flights, like trying to piece together what happened to Vinnie Vincent. Yeah, fascinating. So if you just Google him and read what's, it's like you said, it's weird. Yes, three of us need to be like ghost hunters, but for Vinnie Vincent, go out there, like, do a whole investigative thing. Well, he announced some shows like pre-COVID and he was charging like a thousand dollars. Yeah. But you got like a meet and greet with him and you got some merch and this other stuff. But it's like, I love Vinnie Vincent and Vinnie Vincent Invasion. I'd love to see, but I'm not paying a thousand dollars. No. I did just pay $600 for four tickets to Dawkins. So yeah, but at least that's four tickets. I don't, I'm embarrassed not to know this. George Lynch in or out now? Double duty, Lynch mob opening and then George Lynch with Dokken. I don't think they call it Lynch mob anymore, though. It's on the flyer. Who's the singer of that now, I wonder? Wait, okay, so I just want to circle back on this Vinnie Vincent thing really fast. Yes. We do a whole episode on Vinnie Vincent. We should just, like, let's just be the podcast from now on is Cat, Chris, and Matt talk Vinnie Vincent. I mean... Cat, serious question. Something I have literally wondered since I was, like, 16 about you specifically. What is your favorite Kiss record? I am not a huge Kiss fan. Okay, that's fair. Most every guy I've dated 
has been because they were definitely more of a guy's thing, dare I say, in the sure. But I mean, Destroyer, I guess. I love them. I love them. What's your favorite Kiss record, Chris? Kiss Alive 2. That's the correct Kiss Alive to have be your favorite Kiss Alive. I can, I just lost it, but I can assure you that it's still being listed as um, Lynch Mob. Where, where is it? At the whiskey. Nice. Chris, when did you first go to LA, either as a visitor or a. Uh, I started coming here very late in my life, like in the probably early 2000s or something. So there wasn't a whole lot, but I, but I physically moved here, here. I'm in Chicago right now, but um, I moved there last year and. It's weird because it's like I was moving to L.A., but I was, because of the pandemic, I didn't move to L.A. I just moved to my house, you know. Um, so only in the last month or two, really, um, we're starting to go out again. We're feeling, you know, somewhat comfortable to, to go out. Um, I've seen a couple of shows at the Whiskey. I saw Avatar at the uh, World Turn last week. Um, it's nice to be back out going to shows. And it's a great excuse to go to the Rainbow. You know, every show, it's a Rainbow. You go to Rainbow pre-show. So it's starting to feel a little bit a little bit normal and um and Dokken is one of my favorite bands and I've never seen them so I'm super excited you, you know we'll see we'll see how it is you were in a band though right I was in several bands that went absolutely nowhere but yeah <laughs> but you didn't think we're going to move to LA to make it no I don't think so I, you know it was more of a by the time we, I started playing in bands I was focused more on like thrash metal and um so that was more stuff like that and, and, and then when I moved to New York and started more bands in my like late 20s, they were inspired by bands like, I had a band called, well, I had a couple, Tuxedo Black Charger. And it was very like Kaya's, I didn't know Gozu, but it, but it had, it goes, had I heard Gozu, you know, it was like that kind of, you know, low, low bottom, stonery, but with a little bit more energy than what you consider. It wasn't doomy. It was, you know, it had some swing to it, like Clutch's heavier songs, um, that was kind of, and I, when I moved recently, um, I found a bunch of cassette tapes that we record to cassette when we would, we were, we would rehearse. And uh, I've been listening to them because I recently picked, started picking up the drums again. I hadn't played drums in 14 years and I bought the new Roland uh, kit, which is incredible, the state of the art. And um, I'm starting a band with, with a, with a pretty well-known guitar player. We talked about it on the podcast, but um but I started listening to my old band and I'm like, shit, I used to be able to play drums. Like I sound pretty good. I'm like, Natalie, come in to my wife. Like Natalie, come in here. This is me. Like, I, like, why can't I do this now? <laughs> why am I, why am I so terrible right now? I just got to practice. Are you signing yourself to your label and then re-releasing your early demos once you become famous? See, there you go. That's what we got to do. That's exactly what we're going to do. Matt and I will, you know, push you there with the, the branding and uh... <laughs> So, yeah, so I had I had a question about your sort of career in music journalism and sort of something I'm curious about because you obviously, you know, in Louder Than Hell, you have a lot of really good insights about early death metal. But obviously you didn't come up in that scene. You came up in sort of the complete opposite of that scene. How did you discover death metal and what was sort of your, yeah, how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you a couple things. So, of course... Here, I'll do the horrible self-promotion thing. I have a co-writer, John Wiederhorn. Who's great. And though we didn't necessarily divide the book up by chapters, each one of us would do the lion's share of the interviews or whatever in the scene that we liked or knew best. Like I wrote almost entirely the LA chapter. He did a lot of the death metal 
stuff. He did uh, like a lot of the Norwegian stuff. I did a lot of the proto metal, the MC5, Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath. We both did a lot of the, um, you know, Pantera, Sepultura, you know, according to our likes and knowledge. So, I mean, I guess like, you know, Cannibal Corpse was probably one of my, my early uh, bands. I never was a huge death metal fan. I mean, okay. yeah, so I, yeah, I will, I'll admit that. I mean, people will be like posers, whatever, but yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, that's hard. You know, you have every, every person I think in every career has that imposter syndrome, you know, where they're like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm a fake. Um, but yeah, I will admit that there's genres I don't know or love as well. So yeah, that, that's what I'd have to say about that. I think I'm just a curious person. So I want to know who recorded it, Morris Sound. Who's, you know, uh, you know, what was death like? What was, um, you know, some of the, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't even remember his name. You know, I'm, I'm a little more into pentagrammy. I mean, as I know you, Matt, like psychedelic, uh, heavy doom sort of stuff is more my thing and as i said the very uh, blues based medley stuff is more even though i mean at rip magazine i interviewed like here we'll see if you know we're like any of these chris like um cats and boots uh 220 volt europe um trying to think who else back then um electric boys <laughs> electric boys are great i'm emailing with the singer connie bloom as we speak because like Chris said, everyone's still around. So yeah, I don't think, um, I can't say I was, you know, you should get John Wiederhorn on the show because he's written, I don't know if you have already, because he's- I have Raising Hell that, that just came out recently. Yes, exactly. And and John also did um, Scott Ian's book and Al Jorgensen's book. Yeah, well, Al, Al Jorgensen's book is brilliant. I, I read that on vacation pre-pandemic. And there's also so much, I, apparently, that's not in the book that John had to leave out. And, there, you know. I bet. I, w- I won't tell his stories, but they were um, scary because he went in person. And I guess Al, Al was sober, but drinking. So, you know, as one does. So I think very late nights got a little crazy. Lucky they had the tape recorder running because... I don't think either of them remembered. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't know. I know I didn't really, I kind of weaseled out of your question. No, it's all good. No, I was just curious, but like, I appreciate the honesty. You know, I was thinking last night as we were watching Black Dahlia Murder, I don't listen to metal at home a ton, but I would rather see a metal show than anything else these days. I feel the same way. I, no, I listen to metal at home, in the car, at work. Do you? Yeah. Okay. We're posers. I mean, I use metal like I used to when I was a teenager, where it's like I'm dressing up to go to the rainbow. Mm, let's see. Should we put on Judas Priest or Motorhead or, you know, Bang Tango or whoever to get us in that mood? So, um, yeah, I think at home I still listen to more classic metal than anything. Well, it's like still a thing, right? Like, so I'm here in Chicago and I'm going, I'm here for a few days for a conference, but I'm going to go on Wednesday night to um, Kuma's, you know, Kuma's Corner. Mm-hmm. Love it. Heavy metal burger bar. Delicious. And then um, when I make my way up to New York, we're going to see um, Capra, who's one of our bands on Black Light Media. Oh. Um, they're performing at St. Vitus, and we're going to hang out and have brunch with them. And um, But it was just so funny. So I'm like on a 20-day trip right now, in which I, I travel a lot, and I always – 
I, I used to overpack like crazy and I don't anymore. Now I sit and I say, okay, you know, I, I lay out the days, like what's happening on the first day and the second day and the third day. And it's like funny, like for Kumas and for Capra, I'm like in my closet, like what shirts am I going to wear? Like it's, you know, what I mean? it's not just like whatever. So I have like four, I have like four options for the show. I've got two options for Kumas. That's like, just, it's like, it is like I'm a, a teenager. So that, well, I thought you, it's funny. I thought you were going to say you didn't pack much and would just buy a shirt at every show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you know, um, what? I decided what to wear last night because, you know, it was, um, God, Matt, tell me all four bands. Now I'm, I'm blanking completely. On Death, Carnifex, After the Burial, and Rivers and I Hill and Black Dolly. Mm-hmm. So Rivers and I last night? So good. My first time seeing them, I got to meet them afterwards. Um, I was blown away. Um, they were great. And um, so I'm like, I saw them at Vitus. Yeah, and I want to come see your band for you know keep me keep me posted. I'm yeah down the street. Well, not down the street from Vitus, but close enough. Yeah, so I'm like, what shirt am I going to wear last night? I did the same thing, but I don't have. I ended up wearing a Rolling Stones shirt. So before we get to you know it's going to get late soon. I want to know about so this Louder Than Hell book, which did extremely well, right? Yeah, you know it's it's has legs, as they say in whatever business. Yeah. This could be its own podcast, but take me. I'm fascinated by oral histories, and I but but I also recognize that it must be a tremendous amount of work that goes into that. So, how do you do it? The interviews come first, and then how do you piece it together? So, John Wiederhorn and I, it's our first book, both of our first book. He brought me in, he already had an agent, uh, because he was talking about doing a Judas Priest book, which didn't happen. And then the agent said, Um, I agented this book called uh, Please Kill Me which is a, a famous oral history of punk. He's like, there, you know, have you ever thought of doing a metal thing like that? And John's like, maybe. And so, you know, we both read that book and we kind of knew the idea, but we didn't, we truly didn't know how to begin. And I will tell you the first interviews I ever did for Louder Than Hell, I said, what is metal? I mean, I really, we were just, both of us were really lost. Um, but the thing that, that kind of saved us is that when you do a book, you have to do a proposal, which is like literally 30 pages long. It's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so you have mm-hmm. to have your chapters. So we had kind of an outline to go through. And the other thing that is very was very helpful for us is that we were able to use all our archival interviews because John and I both been uh, at Rip Magazine. He wrote for me then. He was at a guitar or guitar world and I wrote for him. And we had already 20 years of interviews. So that saved us. Um, So we used our archival stuff. And then, you know, we just kind of, it's roughly chronological. That's, that's pretty much it. Um, That I, I, that seems to be the only way you can do it. I mean, I'm sure there are people who do do it differently. Um, And the funny thing was, so you're right. Yes, we had to, the thing is you do one interview and then you have to base your next interviews in that same chapter on what the first person says so that you get everyone telling different versions of the same stories or you're coming at the same story from different angles. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the challenge because you're, you've got so many moving parts. And then we realize, what do we do when there's holes in the, in the narrative? Like you're saying, you know, putting it together is a total nightmare. And fortunately, we had... We, you know, over the years, we have enough friends in the music business where we could go back to a few of them and be like, um, you know, hey, Dave Windorf from Monster Magnet, 
tell me something about this so I can stick this in here to segue these two things. So it never, it never does work out perfectly that you have to somehow sneak segues in pretty much. I mean, with a topic this big, maybe if you had a smaller, more compact book, um, it would be easier to tell the story. And we also did like triple the interviews we meant to. Um, we just kept sure. going. Um, so yeah, it was, that was definitely a big challenge. And that's why, you know, if we're doing uh, death, you know, John knew the trajectory of that better. I know the tra trajectory of something else better, a hardcore better. And in fact, we did, I'll, I'll ask your, your guys' opinion. The book is already 700, over 700 pages. <laughs> but the editor just said, you know, just turn it in. Yeah, they had no idea. And so we did. And they sent us a photo back of uh, like a ruler next to our manuscript. And we're like, uh-oh, it's, it's too big. And so we cut a chapter out that I had written almost entirely, which was the grunge chapter. Um, okay. So I had, mm. so should that have been in there? I mean, what I did, because I knew it was a metal book, I talked to Soundgarden and everyone about metal. And they're all like, we love Black Sabbath. Allison Shane said we went to Guns N' Roses and tried to hand them our demo before we were a band. So I approached grunge from the metal standpoint, but when we had to shorten the book, that one went. So how many years? Uh, supposedly it was, I believe we had a, you know, you have a contract with these things. I think our contract said two and it ended up four, four years. And, wow. and during this time, I will tell you my personal nightmare. Um, I ended up separating from my husband, not because of the book though, maybe a little cause because I was so busy with it. And I moved into John Wiederhorn's basement. Oh, wow. It sounds like I was like locked in a cage, but he had a basement apartment. So I moved into it. So we could just, I could go up to his living room in pajamas. I could sit on the floor and like, you know, move around uh, Vinnie Vincent and Vinnie Paul or, you know, and we didn't do which might've been smart, like note cards where you could have just, you know, right. moved them all around a giant room. We did not do that, which is, uh, if we did, if we did another oral history, yeah, I might approach it slightly differently. I'm not sure. Have you, I mean, have you, either of you tried to write something like that? Yeah. Well, I wrote, yeah, I have a book. I, I, wrote, I wrote a book. The first way I went about doing it with my first co-author was exactly that. I, we, I rented an office specifically as a writing office. And we literally did what you just said. We had tons of cardboard boards up and lots of sticky notes. And it just didn't come together. And then so I, after about a year and a half of at least once or twice a week meetings of trying to put it together, maybe not once or twice a week, but as often as we could, um, I scrapped it, took a year off and then I came at it with a di much different approach and a different co-writer and it came together much much quicker um, and it's a great book it's, it's not it's a cookbook but it's it's there's it, there's a lot of um wow it's, not just a cookbook. it's a home entertaining book it's a oh my gosh whole my philosophies on entertaining it's a whole thing whatever anyway wow no no not anyway now I have to see that wow yeah it's called share last two things before we go what's next what are you working on now Good question. So uh, I, I left LA in 2005, I think, and I moved to New York because I had a job with Alice Cooper, which I still have. So I produce his classic rock radio show, Nights with Alice Cooper. And that is my day job, as I say, because being entirely freelance is just too scary for me. I just, I like to know my rent's going to be covered. 
So Alice is always there, which has been really cool. And John and I use the conference room at the uh, United Stations radio networks to do a lot of our work. So it was super supportive and we were really grateful for that. So since then, really, I have just been upping my freelance game um, as a writer and you know, occasionally I'll get something in Rolling Stone and I, I wrote for Esquire. I mean, I was trying to get to higher and higher magazines and also branch out from metal because I did, I, I actually felt I was pigeonholed, which is a good thing, but I don't want to be just, I'm a journalist. I'm not just a metal journalist is how I saw it, but other people are just, would only call me to write about, they're like, oh, we're doing a, something on Queensryche. I'm like, oh, can I do something on Lucinda Williams? No, we need metal. So I have been trying to broaden my horizons. And the latest thing that I just completed was um, the eight episode Metallica podcast called the Metallica podcast. And I was one of two story producers on that. Oh, great. And that was also an interesting thing. And it was, you know what? It was very much like an oral history because we spent six hours with Metallica over Zoom. And then from there, we interviewed almost 30 other people from their managers at Q Prime to Wayne Isham, who directed the uh, the Enter Sandman video, to gr- amazing interview with Bob Rock, the producer, talked to you know Rob Halford, and that we had to build a, po- a a literal oral history, which I guess is what the podcast is. So that was a really interesting pro- uh, process. So we did eight episodes of that that just finished, and um, right now I am editing. I don't think this is secret. I'm editing Brian Slagle's second book. Oh, great. It's well-written. It's great. I'm just going through and, you know, taking out if there's an extra, et cetera, or if something's spelled wrong, there, there aren't a lot of issues with it. And I've been learning a lot from that too, which is fun. He talks about all the early demos and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was never a hair metal guy, as far as I can tell. Slagle. No, yeah, no. Um, so I'm editing that. And then my friend, uh, uh, Jeremy Wagner from the band Broken Hope. He, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, well, we've had dinner. We had dinner yes, together. We, we right? did. Yeah, we yeah. did. He is also an author, a horror horror guy, and um, I do some editing for him as well. And so those are kind of my current projects. And but interestingly, to this the point of this whole conversation, um, I also write liner notes for albums. Actually, I just did the um, Stone Temple Pilots, Tiny Music liner notes uh, for Rhino Records, because I also came up in the early 90s scene. So I interviewed Kurt Cobain, I interviewed Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, Rage Against the Machine, very much in that scene too. Yeah, and there's a lot of interest in that. And two people have come to me saying, you know, oh, we're going to do a box set. Oh, we're going to do a TV show. And they've asked me to write like synopsis, synopsis, synopsis? Um, Yes, (laughs) on that stuff. And uh, I also actually had a TV gig, which was fun, which was um, for Access, a show called If These Walls Could Rock, and it was uh, on venues. And so I wrote TV scripts for the Troubadour, Aragon Ballroom in Chicago, and um, Preservation Hall, which was really fun. Again, getting away from metal, but but for the Aragon, I, uh, I booked Chips Enough. I booked some of the guests, too. So I booked Chips Enough yeah. to talk in Chicago about the Aragon. So yeah, that's the great thing. So many people are still around and I get to go to them and, you know, oh, and for the Troubadour, I booked the guests. I booked Gilby Clark and his daughter, Frankie Clark, who's oh <laughs> yeah. in a band. So that's the super fun thing about my career is that there's so many 
old friends who are still making music or doing something new and they think of me for projects or I think of them for projects and it's um I know I said just two things but I, I have one thing I really want to finish on but before I get to that um how did the Alice Cooper thing happen yeah I mean as a journalist I think it ripped or or something I'd interviewed him once or twice and it was fine I don't think we had you know Alice is great with everyone it wasn't like he fell in love with me and said I need this woman but after rip magazine ended and internet coming in, print magazines going out. I went into radio and I worked at a show called Rockline, which was a syndicated radio show hosted by mostly by Bob Coburn, but briefly by Ricky Rackman, who I also met from Cat House. So it's all a whole thing. And I did Rockline for about six years and Alice was a guest on that quite a few times. Then I left that show and uh, someone had decided I'm starting a show with Alice Cooper. And they said, oh, you know, Catherine was in classic rock. She's interviewed Alice. And they called me up. And I actually said no, <laughs> because they said, you have to move to Arizona for Alice. I'm like, no. <laughs> and so I, I recommended a friend for the job. And he started out the show. And then two years after that, they said, you can move to New York because the, the syndication companies in New York, you don't have to be with Alice because he's on tour anyway. So I took the job then, moved to New York. And that's how the Alice thing happened. And um, you know, it, it came through the radio syndication company, not through Shep Gordon, you know, Alice's amazing right, manager right, right. who has a big food and restaurant background too. I'm sure, you know, yep. Um, yep. yeah. So that's how the Alice thing began. And it's, um, you know, the, obviously the secret is that he voice tracks ahead of time because, you know, if he's, uh, you know, in Germany doing voices of classic rock on tour, you know, he can't be live uh, in Springfield, Illinois. So, um, right. yeah, it's a lot of moving parts, but it's um, Alice's, he is amazing. I mean, you know, Metal Blade reissued a couple of his early albums. I can't remember which ones off the top of my head, but, um, and then of course, when I started doing the radio show, I knew several of his band members, Ryan Roxy from, the early days and Eric Singer, the drummer I'd known. So it's, it is, I mean, as you guys know, it's such a cool world and such a small world. Um, and if you have a good reputation, hopefully you keep, you know, getting stuff, which is knock on wood. You've had quite a ride. Yeah, it's, um, you know what? It's It's been awesome. And I, you know, there's times when I thought, well, I get too old for this ever. And I, uh, standing next to Matt, looking into the pit last night. Like, yeah, and I, I, I broke my wrist at Psycho Vegas. I don't know if you knew that after I saw you. Oh shit! I think I saw something on social media about it. Yeah, I was. I went to the Mandalay Bay pool, you know where that stage was, and um, I saw. Uh, I wanted to see uh, a Jizza from Wu Tang because <laughs> I thought, well, this is different. I've never seen Wu Tang. Wu Tang, and yeah, just bopping around, just slipped and fell, and. <laughs> I still went to see Down and Exodus. And, uh, Good for you. Everyone after that, you know, holding my wrist up. So yeah, I, yeah, not too old yet. <laughs> so okay, you ready for this? I am. Matt, I don't think Matt's ready for this. Uh oh. I'm never ready for anything because you lived it and because you were there. Uh oh. You are going to decide right now who the greatest '80s hair metal band were, based on not what they became, not who they are today. Not what they're doing today, but based on your earliest experience with the band when they were still raw. So there's 16 bands. It's a round robin, like, like college basketball. And I want you to just answer it without thinking, okay? Okay. 
Motley crew or rap? Rap. Okay. Ellie guns or Skid Row? Skid Row. Guns or poison? Guns. Slaughter or Great White? Great White. Uh, Def Leppard, Cinderella? Cinderella. Kicks or Kiss? Kicks. So unpopular. Wrong answer. <laughs> I know. I'm unpopular. Ask the Pussycat or Bang Tango? Oh, no. Bang Tango. Okay. Wasp or Dawkin? Dawkin. Okay. Round two. Rat or Skid Row? Rat. Based on then, remember. Uh, guns or Great White? Guns. I think I see where this is going. Cinderella or Kicks? Kicks. Uh, Bang Tango or Dawkin? Oh, no. Dawkin. <laughs> this is so much pressure. Rat or Guns? Guns. Kicks or Dawkin? Dawkin. Guns or Dawkin? Guns. Guns and Roses wins. I I knew that where this was going right from the beginning. Is this something you do with people, Chris? No, I just I just thought of this while we were talking right now. It's a great thing. I saw you writing. I was like, oh. Okay. But you did mean you meant LA guns, right? Oh, come on now. <laughs> no, you, you know what you did there. Just kidding. Um, thanks so much for being on. You're awesome. This was so fun. Everybody out there, if, if you if you have not read Louder Than Hell, you have got, listen, I'll buy it for you. Find me on Instagram. I'll buy it for you. Um, you've got to read this book. It's amazing. I won't actually buy it for you, but. I'll buy it for you because I actually care. Oh, okay. my God. I'll, and if you see me out, I'll sign it for you. Actually, I just want to show you guys something creepy because uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy. So I, I did a book reading at, uh, John and I did a book reading at Book Soup in L.A. Yeah. And of course, afterwards, we went to the Rainbow. And we ran into Ron Jeremy. Oh, geez. And Ron Jeremy grabbed my book and Ron signed my book. Oh, my gosh. Signed your book for you. I, yes. I didn't want him to. He, he's like, oh. And it says one million on eBay, Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Very random. So then, <laughs> isn't that bizarre? I was with Stephanie Cabral and we're like, so, yeah. So I, I, I'm treasuring this copy. Not at yeah. all. Not at all. But yeah, that was just a weird thing. But well, thank you. I mean, this is, I'm so excited to have people who read and love the book. I do have another book in the pipeline, but I, I, I don't know if it will happen. So if it happens, you can have me back. If it does, let us know. We're going to have you on again to talk about it. That would be awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kat. See you in New York, I hope. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast for the first time in your miserable life? I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going Strong. 
11 years now, the podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts. Thank you.